A reading from Habakkuk. O Lord, I have heard of your renown, and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, may you remember mercy. Though the fig tree does not blossom, and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails, and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. Hi, everybody. Throughout this month-long four-part sermon series on lament, I've been repeating what I hope is by now a simple three-part outline that most biblical laments follow. Simple because all three words begin with the same letter P. A lament includes protest, petition, and praise. But now that we've come to our, in our series to that final praise part of lamenting, I'd like to clarify what I think it means to praise God in the midst of a lament. And I'll start by saying what it doesn't mean, so that you don't misunderstand it as just a way to soften God up with a little bit of praise so that we get what we want. As if God was like some other powerful people who seem to constantly need to be told what a great job they're doing. That's not God. And that's not what it means to praise God in a lament. Since our prayers and especially our laments are best when they are totally honest, our praise also needs to be honest and true to the pain that the rest of our lament has expressed. And if we started our lament by talking about our fears, our confusion, even our anger toward God about the state of things around us or the state we're in, we can hardly end by just telling God how great and wonderful we think God is. The main cause of our lamenting, after all, is that it doesn't seem to us that God is doing such a wonderful job lately, at least not in terms of what we've known and been taught to expect from God. So our praise at the end of our lament needs to be something more honest than that, more real, expressing a confidence that is more grounded in what's come before than in what we are seeing or experiencing now. I also know that there are those who teach that Christians always ought to end their prayers with praise, confidently thanking God for the answer we haven't gotten yet, because we know we're going to get it. But that too isn't the kind of praise I'm talking about here. I mean, maybe it's just me, but thanking God in advance just seems a little less than honest as well like I'm trying to butter God up or persuade or impress God with my confidence with this down payment of gratitude while I'm still waiting for the blessing to come. But in a lament, praise has more to do with two other words, words that also, by the way, begin with the letter P. And those words are past performance. We praise God for what God has done in the past and for the confidence that that gives us that God is still good and still intends to act for our good now. Past performance. It may be that those words make you think of investment advisors 
who always place a disclaimer at the end of their advertisements warning you that past performance is no guarantee of future results. And while that may be true for the stock market and other investment decisions, when it comes to people and their behavior, it turns out that past performance is a very good and powerful indicator of future behavior. For close to 10 years, ending just last December, I served on the candidacy committee of our New England Synod, a group of 21 people, pastors and laypeople, that had the heavy responsibility of deciding whether or not seminary graduates would be approved for ordination to serve as pastors or deacons in our church. And as part of serving on that group, I was also trained to interview certain candidates who wished to be considered as mission developers, meaning pastors who would go out and start congregations from scratch, a place where there was no church before, which, as you might imagine, requires a special set of gifts and skills beyond those needed to serve and grow an existing congregation with an in-place leadership group. And part of the training for that interviewing was in what's called behavioral interviewing, a style of interviewing that was developed by industrial psychologists way back in the 1970s, but is still widely used by human resource people today. And the theory behind behavioral interviewing is that the most accurate predictor of future performance is past performance in a similar situation. Which means then when you're interviewing a candidate, instead of asking a forward or future leaning question like, what would you do if one individual and influential layperson was blocking a decision that you and all other leaders thought was urgent? You instead of asking that future question would instead say, tell us about a time when you had to overcome a significant obstacle in order to achieve an important goal. You would ask a question about past behavior in order to figure out how a person might behave in a future situation, because when it comes to human behavior, past performance turns out to be a very accurate predictor of future behavior. And you will learn more about what a candidate or applicant will do and how they will react to a situation by asking them about things they've already done. That's the idea behind a behavioral interview. Past performance helps predict future behavior. And since, at least in the Bible's portrayal, God behaves more like a human or like a personality than like an impersonal, market-driven investment, the strong witness of Scripture is that when it comes to God, past performance is the absolute best predictor of God's future behavior. God can be trusted to act in mercy and steadfast love because God has always in the past acted in mercy and steadfast love. We can praise God in our laments for the same reason that we can praise God for every morning sunrise. We can praise God in our laments for the same reason that scientists can praise God for reproducible experimentation. We can praise God in our laments for the same reason that we can praise God for hummingbirds returning to our feeders on the same week of every year. God is reliable. God has proven God's self to be consistently 
in the oft-repeated words of Scripture, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. For generations, for thousands of years, for people who not only face the struggles that we face, but much more and much worse. In your Bible, there's a tiny three-chapter book, the fifth to the last in the Old Testament, that is the lament of a prophet named Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. He's such a minor prophet that we're not even sure how we should pronounce his name. But his little book helps us to see how a lament moves from protest to petition to a praise that is solidly grounded in God's past performance. His book starts with kind of a question and answer session between the prophet and God. The prophet protests that God is not listening to his cries, not saving him from violence. And God answers by telling the prophet to look around and see that God is indeed active, doing things he'd find hard to believe. Listen. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous, therefore judgment comes forth perverted. Look at the nations and see, be astonished, be astounded, for a work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. For I am rousing the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Then there's another exchange. This time the prophet looks back at what he knows about God. God's eyes are too pure to see evil and not do something about it. How can God be silent now when the wicked swallow the righteous? He stands defiant at his watchpost to see what God will say. And this time... God answers with a call to patience. Listen again. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. The righteous live by their faith. Now the Apostle Paul and much later after him Martin Luther would take that minor prophet's words and make of them a whole theology of justification by grace through faith in Jesus. The way to be right with God is to trust God. And the way to trust God is to know who God is and how God has behaved in the past because that's the best predictor and best indicator of how God will act now and in the future. And the way to praise God in lament is therefore to remember how God responded to your lamenting ancestors, to rehearse those deeds of God that saved slaves in Egypt, guided wilderness wanderers, blessed a land and people, and held them to account 
when they failed to love God and neighbor. The way to praise God and lament is to remember that the God who perplexes us today is the same God who flummoxed Jeremiah and Job, and whose behavior that even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane mistook as abandonment, while God was actually loving the world so much that he would give his only son. Again, relying on past performance to be a predictor of present or future behavior is how to praise God in a lament. And I'm not going to read all of it to you now, but sometime later today, I want you to open your Bible to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. It's not a lament itself, but it is a great example for the praise portion of any lament. Because each one of that Psalm's 26 verses begins with a different remembrance of some past saving deed of God. And each verse then has the same refrain. Here's just a sample. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who spread out the earth on the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. For 26 verses, the psalm uses God's past performance to predict God's future behavior and to express praise and confidence in God's enduring steadfast love. Now, this past week, we asked you to tell us about God's past performance in your life. We didn't quite ask it that way. We asked, about, we asked you to tell us about a time when you felt most blessed by God. And so what I'd like to do now is turn those responses into an manual version of Psalm 136 as you watch those responses scroll past on your screen. Give thanks to the Lord for God is good, for God's steadfast love endures forever. Who has blessed us with life and placed us in families, for God's steadfast love endures forever whose love and blessing we find in the eyes of our newborn children, for God's steadfast love endures forever, who has held us in the hollow of God's hand when we've felt lost and afraid, for God's steadfast love endures forever, who gave us mentors and trusted friends as we discerned God's call, for God's steadfast love endures forever, who drew us close and deepened our faith and helped us focus on what matters in times of deepest danger and illness and fear. For God's steadfast love endures forever. Who has filled our hearts with joy, surrounded us in the spirit-filled community of his church, and with a cloud of witnesses and the saints who have gone before us, for God's steadfast love endures forever. That, my friends, is the kind of praise that is fit for a lament, celebrating God's past performance as the best indicator and reliable and trustworthy sign of what we can count on from God's future behavior. Wait for it, was God's answer to Habakkuk. There is still a vision for the appointed time. The righteous live by their faith. 
especially their faith that God is consistently gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Which is why that prophet's brief little book ends with such a powerful word of confident trust, even in the most troubled times, even when every blessed thing seems to be going wrong. The words of Habakkuk that you heard right before this sermon began were these. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive tree fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, though close to 100,000 of our fellow citizens have died and still more people are getting sick, though our patience with confinement is wearing thin and a vaccine is still many months away. Yet, the prophet says, yet we say, even though life is bleak, nevertheless, despite all of that, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will praise the God of my salvation. God is my strength, Habakkuk says. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer he makes me tread upon the heights. So remember, my friends, when concluding a lament, instead of praying to God, what would you do if, or what will you do now? It's better to put God through a holy behavioral interview and ask God to remind me of a time when. And then praise God for that past performance, confident that God's steadfast love endures forever. Amen.